Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. Welcome back to the Baker McKenzie podcast. As our listeners know, throughout this series, we've been discussing some of the wider issues and the major challenges that businesses have faced throughout the pandemic. Now, today we're going to take a look towards the future, and we're going to focus our time on the key learnings and the opportunities that we've seen as we look ahead to what's next. Joining me for today's chat, we have a wealth of legal expertise. First up, we have Nick Cranfield, Nick's Global Director of Legal Operations at Dyson. And from Baker McKenzie's London offices, we have Janan Crozier and Sunny Mann. Janan's a partner in the firm's corporate group and a member of the Global IMT Steering Committee, And Sunny co-leads the UK compliance and investigations practice, as well as the UK international commercial and trade practice. And just to let you know, in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules, we're going to record this podcast from our homes. Our focus today is very much on the industrials. It's been one of the hardest hit sectors throughout the pandemic, and it's one that's needed to really take bold and innovative measures in order to remain resilient. That's why I'm really excited to welcome Nick to the podcast, because Nick, You work for a company whose name is synonymous with invention and innovation. Can you tell us how Dyson has really dealt with the pandemic in order to thrive and remain resilient? Sure. Well, thank you very much for having me, first of all. It's really nice to be here. Yeah, I think, you know, reflecting on this question, it's kind of interesting because um, it's been almost a year now, really, since, um, at least since in the UK, the kind of full impact of COVID happened. And I was reflecting back um, on that 12-month period. And I think it's quite interesting to put yourself in the position that we were in 12 months ago, because everything started happening in the UK extremely quickly around this time. But as a global business, the pandemic for us, you know, started in January last year, because we're in China, we've got a lot of manufacturing in Southeast Asia. So it sort of started to, to creep towards us. But I think the gravity of the situation really kind of accelerated and escalated towards kind of the end of February and into March last year and you know there was a period of time where it was pretty scary um for us at Dyson it was pretty scary for everybody obviously there were the health implications and I guess that was foremost in everyone's mind but then quite quickly following on from that was the kind of the potential business impact and just a vast amount of uncertainty which from any kind of business or economic context that's what really creates the kind of anxiety you don't really know what's going to happen you don't know whether your supply chain is going to hold up, whether you're going to keep being able to manufacture it. So that's kind of on the supply side of things. And then you also don't know what's going to happen to consumer confidence. So you're not sure whether people are going to keep buying your products. And, you know, there was a period of time there where that was all of those uncertainties were happening at the same time. So it was very difficult. But I think as an organization, we were resilient, we were bold, uh, we were brave. And as a result of that, and thanks also to you know a large amount of good fortune, but also an enormous amount of hard work by everyone across the enterprise, we had a remarkably good year last year, and things are holding up. You know, we managed to keep making our products uh, in the face of some pretty challenging conditions, particularly out, out in Asia and across the world. The demand for our products held up. So, through a lot of hard work, 
dedication, commitment and resilience, you know, the business has, has thrived really, which has been fantastic to see. But, you know, through that, I think there's been so many learnings and so much opportunity for growth. Now, Shannon, you've done a bit of a deep dive into the IMT sector with a recently produced report called A Licence to be Bold. And as Nick was talking about, there's been many challenges for the sector in particular over the past 12 months. You spoke to some of the world's um, largest industrial organizations. And what was found was that at the beginning of 2020, 70% said the need to innovate was overstated and 85% believed traditional drivers would continue to accelerate growth. Now, we fast forward through this pandemic and the challenges have not disappeared. But what we're seeing is that transformation is no longer a nice to have, but it's really become a necessity. So can you talk us through how that pandemic has become just a real catalyst for change in the industry? Yeah, absolutely. So I think companies pre the COVID crisis, they had started a journey towards uh, digitization towards reforming and reshaping supply chain, exploring new markets, uh, upskilling their workforces. And that was, particularly in the industrial sector, uh, a plan that would be implemented over several years, perhaps even a decade. COVID created an environment which we have not experienced before as a sort of modern industrial world, And it created a necessity to take some bold action around how we were going to adapt and to change and react to this situation. And what that's actually resulted in is companies taking a look at what their change plans were and working out how do we accelerate this? How can we uh, digitise, innovate, modernise in as short a period as possible? And I think interestingly now, you uh, have an investor base, a market expectation that companies will adapt, that they will change, that they will take bold action. And that has created an environment where companies are empowered to take transformation change. And in an environment where pre-COVID markets and investors would be looking at this change and really were expecting revenues to continue to come from classic business lines, business models. Now, any action is good action. And really what they're focused on is is taking uh, the time in which we are now to accelerate that growth, to fast forward. And it's really created a bit of a reprieve from market expectations, from some of the norms around restructuring, uh, around digitization spend, and also around engaging with the workforce. That has often been uh, an area where companies have had to bring their workforces along. Workforces now are much more open and adaptable to trying anything in this environment. We're at a point in time where companies need to come out of this pandemic stronger, leaner, quicker, more able to adapt to any situation. Would you see that then, Janet, as a, as a window of opportunity unlike any other that you've seen? Uh, you know, this is a real moment in time for companies to be bold, as you say, and to take those risks. Is this a moment unlike others? We clearly can't talk about COVID in terms of opportunity, but what we can say is it's created a unique market situation where companies that may have historically had restrictions placed on them around, given how the market perceived them, how quickly they could change, how quickly they could adapt, 
what capex they could invest in digitization, for example. Now, I think all bets are off and the investor base is much more open to companies taking any action. And it isn't necessarily around the success of that action, simply around a company being bold enough to take some action. And frankly, any company that is not already considering some form of strategic review of their operations and focusing on what is core and non-core is already behind the times. It's interesting what you're saying because... um... One thing that struck me as you were speaking then, Janan, was, you know, in a way, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So from an internal perspective, if you're working in enterprise, really now you've got to change. And that's what kind of drove a lot of the catalyst for change last year. So things were happening, but everything got speeded up because from necessity. But then I also think then there's the external angle, which is that kind of investor angle, which means that you're in an environment where you've got to change, but actually it's much more forgiving from the external perspective, because as long as you're prepared to to be bold and to embrace that moment for change, actually there's a lot more space for you to kind of potentially fail and fail fast and recognize that and then change again and adapt and be quick and agile. And I think that's what people's expectation is. And in moments of crisis, that's, that's what people value. They don't want you to get into your bunker and hunker down and hope for the best. They want you to sell a positive, optimistic vision of what could be in the future, but then get on and make it and actually take some agency and do something about it. And I think that's the environment that we're in at the moment. And that definitely rewards that kind of courageous approach to risk taking, not to be reckless, but to be prepared to see the future, to plan for it, but to move ahead as if you can take agency in the world and not just wait for things to get better. That's a great point. And Sunny, what do you think? I mean, when you talk to clients now, we've we've moved into this recovery or renewal phase. I mean, how do you think the industry's managed to really cope with being um, as agile and flexible as we've just been discussing? Well, look, Jen, there's no denying that it has been a challenging period. It's meant redefining business models in, in unfamiliar ways. It's entailed training teams, retraining them um, in, in situations where they perhaps used to uh, build and service assets, and now they're having to focus more on digital platforms uh, and products. It's involved organisations having to deal with intense disruption in the supply chain arising out of COVID, out of Brexit. So the energy and the engagement that's really needed to reinvent a, a lot of these complex global asset-rich businesses into uh, um, a different model you can't underestimate the, the, the time and effort that really takes, especially because when you think about industrials, the way they've tended to operate is when they invest in a particular market or structure, it is a very significant long term uh, um, investment that they've made. And so this may also explain why it can take a little bit longer for industrials to adapt to the new way of working. But that, that said, there was one FTSE 100 industrial I was talking to recently where the client took a real positive from the crisis. And the positive that they were taking as an organisation is that despite the initial anxiety associated with what started a year ago now, they were really uh, impressed with the resilience of of their business, but also of industry more broadly. The fact that they've coped well, it's giving them confidence to be more ambitious. It's essentially, it's giving them that licence to be more bold. Uh, um, We surely get a a bonus point for for taglining Janan's report again. I think she liked that. Now, Nick, I mean, talking about all this flexibility, do you have any examples of what, you know, you've done at Dyson to remain flexible and really meet the the challenges? I mean, everybody assumes that flexibility is in Dyson's DNA. Um, Do you think the company um, 
had to adapt even quicker than it would have liked to? That's definitely true. I mean, you know, there are lots and lots of different examples. And I guess, you know, that I can think of some that are specifically relevant to the kind of legal operations space and what we were doing. We were in the midst of planning a transformation programme anyway in terms of delivery of legal services. We needed to deliver that at a much faster pace than we were planning to. But there was a lot of opportunity in that as well because, you know, with the increased focus on how we could deliver legal services at a competitive cost from engaged teams, but because we wanted to do that much more quickly, that meant that we could get the space from the business. So the people that we are serving understood that we were under that pressure. And to Janan's point, in kind of microcosm, that allowed us to take risks that we otherwise might not have taken because we could feel that the environment was more receptive in that moment for that. But it also enabled me to get the investment that I needed to do the transformation because it was easier for me to say to the CFO and others, look, we need this investment because if we make the investment now quickly, we'll be able to deliver this change, which is going to help us to be more competitive. But I think more broadly, you know, if I think about, you know, looking after our workforce and caring for the people that, that we employ, you know, this has been an enormous challenge over the last year because in Dyson, you know, what's driving us as a sort of engineering technology company is being able to collaborate together. And that involves getting together. We've had lots of lockdowns and restriction of movement and all the rest of it. And that's difficult. And I think, you know, you can feel in the enterprise that it's hard sometimes, you know, we want to get together. That's how we, that's in our culture. And we can't do that at the moment as much as we would like to. And trying to find ways to kind of make that happen and to keep the innovation and that spirit going forward. But I think everyone has stepped up to the challenge to try and deliver that. There's only so much that remote working um, can can create that collaboration, but it has done tremendously well. I mean, technology in helping us through this pandemic and driving the digital transformation. Janet, from your point of view, how has technology really helped companies pivot and, and thrive and, and remain resilient during these times? It's been an absolute key driver. I think if you Think back to even 10 years ago, um, how would we have uh, coped with a pandemic like this had we not had the technology we have now? Simply put, we wouldn't. I think one of the great things to come out of this is we will always have technology as a way to encourage innovation, collaboration, but it will never be a substitute for human contact. But in this current uncertain times, it does enable us to continue our businesses, to continue sharing ideas and to continue really that connectivity that we all need in order to continue to thrive. But I think interestingly, technology was already a massive driver of, for example, M&A going into the pandemic. And what I think, again, this pandemic has done is it's accelerated the industrial desire and, frankly, need to uh, focus on their digital strategies. Pre the pandemic, industrials, they were all very much focused on their industrial strategy, Industry 4.0, the need to automate their manufacturing processes and their supply chains, the need to really upskill their workforces. But it was still something that was very much, okay, we will do this alongside our much more traditional revenues. Now, what we're seeing is M&A strategy being driven by the need to accelerate 
digitization and really MA decisions being taken around how can we quickly buy in the technology that we need in order to continue on this journey of change. And I think what that's done is it's created a market where if you think about the start of the pandemic, M&A slowed down hugely. Companies almost became a little bit frozen with fear as to what would happen next and frankly really needed to focus their attention and their energy on preserving their business and, and really sorting out supply chain, sorting out the human capital element, making sure people were okay. But very quickly, those companies that have come out of this in a sort of stronger manner, so to speak, have been those companies that very quickly and early on in the pandemic said, OK, we're going to do a strategic review of our organisation. We're going to focus on what is our core business and we're going to continue on with an M&A strategy around that core business. And that was really twofold. It was let's buy in the technology we don't have. Let's make up our lack of organic growth by buying in businesses that we can adapt into our organisation in order to bridge that organic growth. And let's think about how we can divest non-core assets in order to raise capital to then invest in a digitisation programme. And so I think what we've actually seen recently is a lot of M&A activity and a lot of companies that would have historically been slower to take transformational change in the M&A space be very quick to come to market and say, we are open for business and we're going to continue on with our M&A strategy and this is how we're going to do it. And I think from an M&A perspective, that's why we're seeing some of these really strong deals being pushed through, notwithstanding the fact of COVID and notwithstanding the fact that all of these deals are in large part being done through technology. I have done three deals in lockdown, all of which I have not seen or met my client. Before this time, you wouldn't have envisaged dealing with some of the complex issues that arise on deals over uh, whether it's a Zoom platform, whether it's Teams, you would have met face to face. And now what we're seeing is people making do in order to succeed and thrive. And it's that boldness, again, around how do we become bold and how do we pursue our change platform. Looking back at the report, the next question's for you, Sunny. The License to be Bold found that at the beginning of 2020, 72% of global IMT leaders said that the legacy footprint of their company was leaving them exposed to trade volatility. And that's a trend, again, that we've seen accelerated over the last year. How are your clients dealing with that specific challenge? So, Jen, the statistic doesn't surprise me. If you think about what's happened over the last year, we talked about Brexit, and we're now really learning how companies are struggling with the reams of paperwork when it comes to trading across the channel. The US, uh, um, uh, under the Trump administration, has been engaged in a, a multitude of trade wars, not just with China, but also with some of its closest trading allies like the EU, the UK, Canada, Australia, Japan. Um, we've seen greater national security concerns uh, uh, um, seeping into trade policy with more sanctions and export control rules being introduced. And then there's protectionism, restricting the cross-border movement of products. And we've seen that with vaccines most recently. So absolutely, these times are volatile. Absolutely, they're uncertainty. So what are companies doing? 
I think there are three things that uh, um, they're having to do to adapt to this. I think first, it really does require proper engagement um, and focus from the company and its key stakeholders. So that entails time, resourcing and budget. Yeah. The second thing is really then understanding the impact of disruption uh, uh, as soon as it arises. And then third is being nimble. It's being curious. It's being bold to take advantage of um, alternative supply chain opportunities or routes that, that can arise out of, for example, new free trade agreements. Um, so those are the three things that I think companies are, are, are seeking to do or should at least seek to do. There's um, perhaps a 3B that I know Nick feels strongly about. It's um, that everyone should have good external counsel. Um, I've taken the words right out of your mouth there, Nick. That's OK. Um, but... That could be quite ambiguous, depending on how you interpret it. But yeah, go on. Well, I'm interpreting it in the way that I want at the moment. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we know how much time and focus companies invest in understanding and mitigating their tax exposure. And I think they need to adapt um, a similar mindset with uh, their exposure to trade volatility as well, Jen. And I think interestingly, Jen, we're certainly seeing that have an impact on M&A and companies' approach to M&A now. Um, the focus on ensuring that the suppliers, key suppliers that some of our industrial clients deal with are in a good financial standing and are still able to continue to supply and the impact if uh, one of those suppliers isn't able to on their overall global production can be monumental. And so actually what we've seen is a growing increase on, if not entering into agreements with suppliers, potentially prepaying certain suppliers where companies are, are, have been cash poor, we have started to see more joint ventures being pursued, alternative supply options being looked at. And that in turn is really driving a different approach to supplier-driven M&A. I think that will continue. And I think one of the balances to that is obviously some of the regulation around that, competition laws, foreign investment review. But businesses are taking a look at their supply chains and they're really starting to shore those up in part using an M&A strategy. Now, Jenny, can we talk a little bit more about the supply chain issue? Because we've touched upon it throughout and, and you've just touched upon it now, but it's, it's amazing because the past year you've seen supply chain hit mainstream media. It's spoken about as a topic in boardrooms around the world regularly. Can you just give us a sense as to, you know, these changes that you've seen and potentially as, as we look towards this renewal phase, what companies have successfully done to make their supply chain more resilient in the industrials? Our clients, our industrial clients are global. Their businesses are global, their customers are global, their suppliers are global. As a consequence, that means they've had to have a global and also holistic view to their supply chain. I think we saw a lot of companies have an over-reliance on Asia. And I think what we're starting to see now is the, it was already starting pre-COVID, but certainly again, uh, COVID being an accelerator of change, is we're starting to see companies say, okay, we're going to go for a more regional model, a regional hub. And so we'll have an Asia hub, but we'll also have an EMEA hub, an Americas hub. Uh, and so we're starting to see companies really think around what is the long-term impact of this pandemic on my supply chain? 
I also think encouragingly what we've seen are companies who started on a journey pre-pandemic around ESG and sustainability agenda. We've actually not seen that agenda slow down or dissipate. Often in times of crisis, companies really have to focus on what is their core and they potentially start to abandon some of the uh, more alternative means of pursuing growth. But in fact, around sustainability, we've seen almost a doubling down on sustainability efforts. And actually, it's continued to be a board level issue. It's continued to be front and centre of what's driving a lot of change. And one of the benefits of moving to more regional supply chain hubs is a sustainability angle. And so I think encouragingly, we'll continue to see sustainability in a post-COVID environment, driving some of the changes that we're now seeing. And again, being fully adapted into the heart of that catalyst for change. Nick, what are you seeing at Dyson when it comes to sustainability? Yeah, well, I think it, it ties into what Jan just said. We've always had a commitment to sustainability in the kind of deep sense that what we're trying to do is to create products that you know, improve and benefit consumers' lives and that, and that last, basically, so that we build our machines and they, that they last. And, you know, that's, that, you know, that's critical, right? Because if you, if you basically build a machine which will last five years rather than one that needs replacing every year, well, that is sustainable. So you don't need to do anything which is kind of for show. That's just, that's just inbuilt in our, in our organization's DNA. So I think that, that that's important. But I think it's, it's also true at Dyson, what Danan says, which, is, which I'm really pleased that she's observing more generally, which is, Unlike other crises, this doesn't seem to have had the impact of withdrawing focus or funding or resource or commitment to ESG or sustainability goals more generally. And I I think that's a real cause for optimism. And I think one of the reasons for that uh, genuinely is because people have observed that we can solve problems. We can actually fix things if we work together. I think the coronavirus pandemic has shown us that if we do do our bit and then but collect you know against and behind a vision you can deliver anything really even in quite short spaces of time and i think that gives people a lot of kind of you know genuine optimism and positivity for making that change stick and sunny what are you seeing in your clients when it comes to sustainability we've talked a lot about license to be bold but companies are also engaging more around this question of what is their license to operate? What is their purpose? What are they giving back to society? We've seen in the ESG uh, space this progressive shift from voluntary rules over more to a a mandatory rule-based system. You know, that that shift is still ongoing, uh, to be fair. We've seen it perhaps more in the environmental space um, and it's beginning to take place much more in the human rights space as as, as well progressively. And I think the smarter organisations are now asking themselves much more about what is their value? What do they want to contribute back uh, as part of the ESG agenda uh, and getting ahead of the curve, essentially? I also think there's a moral obligation on businesses now that exists in a way that didn't exist. If you think about, say, the last financial crisis, um, it was all around, okay, how quickly can we reduce our headcount? How quickly can we start retreating into ourselves? Whereas actually, when you think about schemes such as the furlough scheme, where you see organisations that have continued to say, OK, we're going to cut pay, we're going to cut bonuses, but in fact, we're going to keep people employed. It's because there is a much more moral responsibility that companies feel right now. And I think if, if sustainability 
continues to have this front and centre agenda, it's incumbent on businesses to be a part of that change, to drive that sustainability agenda, more so than even governments, because they are at the forefront of creating the product, of creating the market, of creating the opportunity that will change and shape people's opinions on sustainability and so society therefore at large. And I think, if anything, the reaction of big industrials through this crisis has been encouraging to what our future holds. It holds a sustainable future and a future where people will continue to be front and centre of the moral compass of of organisations and therefore their success. And I think what's going to be interesting is once we recover from COVID and we look back at this period, which are those companies that have survived? Which are those that have been more successful? I think it will be those companies that adapted the quickest, that were not afraid to take bold and decisive action and to try things notwithstanding whether they succeed or fail. And those companies that continue that ESG to be at the heart of driving strategy and decision-making. Janin, what a lovely, optimistic way to close out the podcast. Now, Sunny Nick, based on what Janin was just saying, it sounds like there's an opportunity here to make a positive change. Are you both optimistic about the future for the sector? And do you have any final bits of advice for our listeners? Well, I'm always optimistic. So yes, I remain optimistic. It's interesting what Janet says, because to take a slightly more cynical approach, it helps to be moral when the government's pumping billions and billions of pounds into the economy every month, right? But I think that's there's also something to take from that, which is that um, there is a kind of morality in this, which is that lots of governments around the world have taken the view that it's much better to incur scales of debt which have never been seen before in peacetime to protect economies rather than to allow sections of those economies which let's be honest are just individuals to kind of go to the wall and to pay the price for it and you know without being too political I completely agree with that approach I think it's the right thing to do but what that means is there's lots of money around now that needs investment and we've got to make it work because we've got to pay this money back So this is a moment. These are, you know, the next few months and years are going to be pivotal because we've incurred vast amounts of debt for good reasons. But now we've got to find good ideas and we've got to invest in those ideas. We've got to make it work. We've got to have growth. Growth is fundamental now. That's how we're going to get out of this long term. And so that the last few months and years, we'll remember them and we'll learn the lessons from them but they won't be an anchor to our future prosperity. But we have to make good decisions going forward. So this is the moment. So I'm optimistic, but I also recognise the challenges that lie ahead. Fair enough. Sunny? I think Janan and Nick have captured it really well. Yes, I am optimistic. I think, you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff to look forward to. It'll be fascinating to see how we come back from this. And we will come back. It's just going to be fascinating to see how we come back from it as well, in in what shape and what form. Um, And so the only thing I would say is, look, yes, there's been market disruption, but use this disruption to become a disruptor yourself. And on that note, I just wanted to thank everybody. This has been a really interesting conversation. So thanks, everybody, for joining me today. Thanks. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. 
Use the hashtag Resilience Recovery Renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website at bakermckenzie.com. <laughs>